0: What? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Again, dear listeners, it's time once again for yours cruelly, A.K.A. Adam Hebert, to give you this your weekly dread. This week, we have a pair of short stories by American writer and satirist Ambrose Bierce that helped to inspire Lovecraft when he was developing his Cthulhu mythos. This week, Dreadtime Stories: Back from the Grave is proud to present to you haita the Shepherd" and "An Inhabitant of Carcosa" by Ambrose Bierce. Scare and enjoy, and I'll be back after to introduce this week's episode of the Magnus Archives.
2: Section 5 of In the Midst of Life, Tales of Soldiers and Civilians, 1891. This is a LibriVox recording. LibriVox recordings are in the public domain more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. In the Midst of Life, Tales of Soldiers and Civilians by Ambrose Pierce. Section 5: Haita the Shepherd. In the heart of Haita, the illusions of youth had not been supplanted by those of age and experience. His thoughts were pure and pleasant, for his life was simple, and his soul devoid of ambition. He rose with the sun, and went forth to pray at the shrine of Hastur, the god of shepherds, who heard and was pleased. After performance of this pious rite, Aita unbarred the gate of the fold, and with a cheerful mind drove his flock afield, eating his morning meal of curds and oat-cake as he went, occasionally pausing to add a few berries, cold with dew, or to drink of the waters that came away from the hills to join the stream in the middle of the valley, and be borne along with it he knew not whither. During the long summer day, as his sheep cropped the good grass which the gods had made to grow for them, or lay with their forelegs doubled under their breasts and indolently chewed the cud, Aita, reclining in the shadow of a tree, or sitting upon a rock, played so sweet music upon his reed pipe that sometimes, from the corner of his eye, he got accidental glimpses of the minor sylvan deities, leaning forward out of the copse to hear; but if he looked at them directly, they vanished. From this-for he must be thinking if he would not turn into one of his own sheep. He drew the solemn inference that happiness may come if not sought, but if looked for will never be seen. For next to the favor of Hastur, who never disclosed himself, Haita most valued the friendly interest of his neighbors, the shy immortals of the wood and stream. At nightfall he drove his flock back to the fold, saw that the gate was secure, and retired to his cave for refreshment and for dreams. So passed his life, one day like another, save when the storms uttered the wrath of an offended god. Then Haita cowered in his cave, his face hidden in his hands, and prayed that he alone might be punished for his sins and the world saved from destruction. Sometimes when there was a great rain and the stream came out of its banks, compelling him to urge his terrified flock to the uplands, he interceded for the people in the great cities, which he had been told lay in the plain beyond the two blue hills which formed the gateway of his valley. It is kind of thee, O Hastur, so he prayed, to give me mountains so near to my dwelling and my fold, that I and my sheep can escape the angry torrents, but the rest of the world thou must thyself deliver in some way that I know not of, or I will no longer worship thee." And Hastur, knowing that Haita was a youth who kept his word, spared the cities and turned the waters into the sea. So he had lived since he could remember. He could not rightly conceive any other mode of existence the holy hermit who lived at the head of the valley a full hour's journey away from whom he had heard the tale of the great cities where dwelt people poor souls who had no sheep gave him no knowledge of that early time when so he reasoned he must have been small and helpless like a lamb it was through thinking on these mysteries and marvels and on that horrible change to silence and decay which he felt sure must some time come to him, as he had seen it come to so many of his flock, as it came to all living things except the birds, that Haïta first became conscious how miserable was his lot. It is necessary, he said, that I know whence and how I came, for how can one perform his duties unless able to judge what they are by the way in which he was entrusted with them? and what contentment can I have, when I know not how long it is going to last? Perhaps before another sun I may be changed, and then what will become of the sheep? What, indeed, will have become of me? Pondering these things, Haita became melancholy and morose. He no longer spoke cheerfully to his flock, nor ran with alacrity to the shrine of Hastur. In every breeze he heard whispers of malign deities whose existence he now first observed. Every cloud was a portent signifying disaster, and the darkness was full of new terrors. His reed-pipe, when applied to his lips, gave out no melody but a dismal wail. The sylvan and riparian intelligences no longer thronged to the thicket-side to listen, but fled from the sound as he knew by the stirred leaves and bent flowers. He relaxed his vigilance, and many of his sheep strayed away into the hills and were lost. Those that remained became lean and ill for lack of good pasturage, for he would not seek it for them, but conducted them day after day to the same spot, through mere abstraction, while puzzling about life and death, of immortality he knew nothing. One day, while indulging in the gloomiest reflections, he suddenly sprang from the rock upon which he sat, and with a determined gesture of the right hand exclaimed, I will no longer be a suppliant for knowledge which the gods withhold. Let them look to it that they do me no wrong. I will do my duty as best I can and if I err, upon their own heads be it. Suddenly, as he spoke, a great brightness fell about him, causing him to look upward, thinking the sun had burst through a rift in the clouds. But there were no clouds. Hardly more than an arm's length away stood a beautiful maiden. So beautiful she was, that the flowers about her feet folded their petals in despair, AND BENT THEIR HEADS IN TOKEN OF SUBMISSION, SO SWEET HER LOOK THAT THE HUMMING-BIRDS THRONGED HER EYES, THRUSTING THEIR THIRSTY BILLS ALMOST INTO THEM, AND THE WILD BEES WERE ABOUT HER LIPS, AND SUCH WAS HER BRIGHTNESS THAT THE SHADOWS OF ALL OBJECTS LAY DIVERGENT FROM HER FEET, TURNING AS SHE MOVED. HAITA WAS ENTRANCED. Rising, he knelt before her in adoration, and she laid her hand upon his head. "'Come,' she said in a voice which had the music of all the bells of his flock, "'come, thou art not to worship me, who am no goddess, "'but if thou art truthful and dutiful, I will abide with thee.' Haïta seized her hand, and stammering his joy and gratitude, arose, and hand in hand they stood and smiled in one another's eyes. He gazed upon her with reverence and rapture. He said, I pray thee, lovely maid, tell me thy name, and whence and why thou comest. At this she laid a warning finger on her lip, and began to withdraw. Her beauty underwent a visible alteration that made him shudder, he knew not why for still she was beautiful. The landscape was darkened by a giant shadow sweeping across the valley with the speed of a vulture. In the obscurity the maiden's figure grew dim and indistinct, and her voice seemed to come from a distance, as she said, in a tone of sorrowful reproach, Presumptuous and ungrateful man, Must I then so soon leave thee? would nothing do but thou must at once break the eternal compact inexpressibly grieved haita fell upon his knees and implored her to remain rose and sought her in the deepening darkness ran in circles calling to her aloud but all in vain she was no longer visible but out of the gloom he heard her voice saying "Nay." thou shalt not have me by seeking go to thy duty faithless shepherd or we never meet again night had fallen the wolves were howling in the hills and the terrified sheep crowding about his feet in the demands of the hour he forgot his disappointment drove his flock to the fold and repairing to the place of worship poured out his heart in gratitude to hastur FOR PERMITTING HIM TO SAVE HIS FLOCK, THEN RETIRED TO HIS CAVE AND SLEPT. WHEN HAITA WOKE, THE SUN WAS HIGH AND shone IN AT HIS CAVE, ILLUMINATING IT WITH A GREAT GLORY, AND THERE, BESIDE HIM, SAT THE MAIDEN. SHE SMILED UPON HIM WITH A SMILE THAT SEEMED THE VISIBLE MUSIC OF HIS PIPE OF REEDS. HE DARED NOT SPEAK, FEARING TO OFFEND HER AS BEFORE for he knew not what he could venture to say. Because, she said, thou didst thy duty by the flock, and didst not forget to thank Hastur for staying the wolves of the night, I am come to thee again. Wilt thou have me for a companion? Who would not have thee forever? replied Aita. Oh, never again leave me until, until I change, and become silent and motionless. Haita had no word for death. I wish, indeed, he continued, that thou wert of my own sex, that we might wrestle and run races and so never tire of being together. At these words the maiden arose and passed out of the cave and Haita, bringing from his couch of fragrant boughs to overtake and detain her, observed, to his astonishment, that the rain was falling, and the stream in the middle of the valley had come out of its banks. The sheep were bleating in terror, for the rising waters had invaded their fold, and there was danger for the unknown cities of the distant plain. It was many days before Aita saw the maiden again. One day he was returning from the head of the valley, where he had gone with ewe's milk and oat-cake and berries for the holy hermit, who was too old and feeble to provide himself with food. Poor old man, he said aloud, as he trudged along homeward, I will return to-morrow and bear him on my back to my own dwelling, where I can care for him. Doubtless it is for that that Hastur has reared me all these years, and gives me health and strength. As he spoke, the maiden, clad in glittering garments, met him in the path with a smile which took away his breath. I am come again, she said, to dwell with thee if thou wilt have me, for none else will. Thou mayest have learned wisdom and art, willing to take me as I am, nor care to know haita threw himself at her feet beautiful being he cried if thou wilt but deign to accept all the devotion of my heart and soul after hastur be served it is yours for ever but alas thou art capricious and wayward before to-morrow's sun i may lose thee again Promise, I beseech thee, that however in my ignorance I may offend, thou wilt forgive and remain always with me." Scarcely had he finished speaking when a troop of wolves sprang out of the hills and came racing toward him with crimson mouths and fiery eyes. The maiden again vanished, and he turned and fled for his life nor did he stop until he was in the cot of the holy hermit whence he had set out. Hastily barring the door against the wolves, he cast himself upon the ground and wept. "'My son,' said the hermit from his couch of straw, freshly gathered that morning by Ha'ita's hands, "'it is not like thee to weep for wolves. TELL ME WHAT SORROW HAS BEFALLEN THEE, THAT AGE MAY MINISTER TO THE HURTS OF YOUTH WITH SUCH BALMS AS IT HATH OF ITS WISDOM. HAITA TOLD HIM ALL, HOW THRICE HE HAD MET THE RADIANT MAID, AND THRICE SHE HAD LEFT HIM FORLORN. HE RELATED MINUTELY ALL THAT HAD PASSED BETWEEN THEM, OMITTING NO WORD OF WHAT HAD BEEN SAID when he had ended the holy hermit was a moment silent then said my son i have attended to thy story and i know the maiden i have myself seen her as have many know then that her name which she would not even permit thee to inquire is happiness thou saidst the truth to her that she was capricious for she imposes conditions that man cannot fulfill, and delinquency is punished by desertion. She cometh only when unsought, and will not be questioned. One manifestation of curiosity, one sign of doubt, one expression of misgiving, and she is away. How long didst thou have her at any time before she fled? But a single instant! Answered Haita, blushing with shame at the confession, each time I drove her away in one moment. Unfortunate youth, said the holy hermit, but for thine indiscretion, thou mightest have had her for two. End of section five.
3: An inhabitant of Carcosa. By Ambrose G. Bierce, this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by G. C. Fournier. An inhabitant of Carcosa, by Ambrose G. Bierce. For there be divers sorts of death some wherein the body remaineth, and in some it vanisheth quite away with the spirit. This commonly occurreth only in solitude, such is God's will, and, none seeing the end, we say the man is lost, or gone on a long journey, which indeed he hath, but sometimes it hath happened in sight of many, as abundant testimony showeth. In one kind of death the spirit also dieth, and this it hath been known to do while yet the body was in vigour for many years. Sometimes, as is veritably attested, it dieth with the body, but after a season is raised up again in that place where the body did decay. Pondering these words of Holly, whom God rest, and questioning their full meaning, as one who, having an intimation, yet doubts, If there be not something behind, other than that which he has discerned, I noted not whither I had strayed, until a sudden chill wind striking my face revived in me a sense of my surroundings. I observed with astonishment that everything seemed unfamiliar. On every side of me stretched a bleak and desolate expanse of plain, covered with a tall Overgrowth of sere grass, which rustled and whistled in the autumn wind with heaven knows what mysterious and disquieting suggestion. Protruded at long intervals above it stood strangely shaped and sombre colored rocks, which seemed to have an understanding with one another and to exchange looks of uncomfortable significance, as if they had reared their heads to watch the issue of some foreseen event. A few blasted trees here and there appeared as leaders in this malevolent conspiracy of silent expectation. The day, I thought, must be far advanced, though the sun was invisible, and although sensible that the air was raw and chill, my consciousness of that fact was rather mental than physical. I had no feeling of discomfort. Over all the dismal landscape, a canopy of low, lead-colored clouds, hung like a visible curse. In all this there were a menace and a portent, a hint of evil an intimation of doom. Bird, beast, or insect, there was none. The wind sighed in the bare branches of the dead trees, and the gray grass bent to whisper its dread secret to the earth. But no other sound nor motion broke the awful repose of that dismal place. I observed in the herbage a number of weather-worn stones, evidently shaped with tools. They were broken, covered with moss, and half-sunken in the earth some lay prostrate, some leaned at various angles, none was vertical. They were obviously headstones of graves, though the graves themselves no longer existed as either mounds or depressions. The years had leveled all. Scattered here and there, more massive blocks showed where some pompous or ambitious monument had once flung its feeble defiance at oblivion. So old seemed these relics, these vestiges of vanity, and memorials of affection and piety, so battered and worn and stained, so neglected, deserted, forgotten the place, that I could not help thinking myself the discoverer of the burial-ground of a prehistoric race of men whose very name was long extinct. Filled with these reflections, I was for some time heedless of the sequence of my own experiences. But soon I thought, how came I hither? A moment's reflection seemed to make this all clear, and explain at the same time, though in a disquieting way, the singular character with which my fancy had invested all that I saw or heard. I was ill i remembered now that i had been prostrated by a sudden fever and that my family had told me that in my periods of delirium i had constantly cried out for liberty and air and had been held in bed to prevent my escape out of doors now i had eluded the vigilance of my attendants and had wandered hither to-to where i could not conjecture Clearly, I was at a considerable distance from the city where I dwelt, the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. No signs of human life were anywhere visible or audible. No rising smoke, no watch dogs' bark, no lowing cattle, no shouts of children at play. Nothing but that dismal burial place with its air of mystery and dread. Due to my own disordered brain. Was I not becoming again delirious, there, beyond human aid? Was it not indeed all an illusion of my madness? I called aloud the names of my wives and sons, reaching out my hands in search of theirs, even as I walked among the crumbling stones and in the withered grass. A noise behind me caused me to turn about, a wild animal, a lynx, was approaching the thought came to me if i break down here in the desert if the fever return and i fail this beast will be at my throat i sprang toward it shouting it trotted tranquilly within a hand's breadth of me and disappeared behind a rock a moment later a man's head appeared to rise out of the ground a short distance away he was ascending the farther slope of a low hill whose crest was hardly to be distinguished from the general level His whole figure soon came into view against the background of grey cloud. He was half-naked, half-clad in skins. His hair was unkempt, his beard long and ragged. In one hand he carried a bow and arrow, in the other a blazing torch with a long trail of black smoke. He walked slowly and with caution as if he feared falling into some open grave concealed by the tall grass. This strange apparition surprised, but did not alarm, and taking course to intercept him, I met him almost face to face, accosting him with the familiar salutation, God keep you. He gave no heed, nor did he arrest his pace. Good stranger, I continued, I am ill and lost, Direct me, I beseech you, to Carcosa." The man broke into a barbarous chant in an unknown tongue, passing on and away. An owl on the branch of a decayed tree hooted dismally and was answered by another in the distance. Looking upward, I saw through a sudden rift in the clouds Aldebaran and the Hyades. In all this there was the hint of night. The lynx, the man with the torch, the owl. Yet I saw. I saw even the stars in absence of darkness. I saw, but was apparently not seen nor heard. Under what awful spell did I exist? I seated myself at the root of a great tree, seriously to consider what it were best to do. That I was mad I could no longer doubt yet recognized a ground of doubt in the conviction. Of fever I had no trace. I had withal a sense of exhilaration and vigor altogether unknown to me, a feeling of mental and physical exaltation. My senses seemed all alert. I could feel the air as a ponderous substance. I could hear the silence. A great root of the giant tree, against whose trunk I leaned as I sat, held enclosed in its grasp a slab of stone, a part of which protruded into a recess formed by another root. The stone was thus partly protected from the weather, though greatly decomposed. Its edges were worn round, its corners eaten away, its surface deeply furrowed and scaled. Glittering particles of mica were visible in the earth about it, vestiges of its decomposition. This stone had apparently marked the grave out of which the tree had sprung ages ago. The tree's exacting roots had robbed the grave and made the stone a prisoner. A sudden wind pushed some dry leaves and twigs from the uppermost face of the stone, I saw the low-relief letters of an inscription and bent to read it. God in heaven, my name in full, the date of my birth, the date of my death. A level shaft of light illuminated the whole side of the tree as I sprang to my feet in terror. The sun was rising in the rosy east. I stood between the tree and his broad red disk. No shadow darkened the trunk. A chorus of howling wolves saluted the dawn. I saw them sitting on their haunches, singly and in groups, on the summits of irregular mounds and tumuli filling a half of my desert prospect and extending to the horizon. And then I knew that these were ruins of the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. End of An Inhabitant of Carcosa Truth
0: is stranger than
4: fiction,
5: and this is the proof. This is Ripley's, believe it or not.
6: Thomas Thompson of Wolfley, Scotland, a professional chaser of ghosts, stepped out of a house from which he claimed to have driven a ghost and was struck dead by a bolt of lightning. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the story of a man's loyalty and a king's reward. Sir Edmund Wyndham was convicted of disrespect to the king as a result of striking a foe in the presence of King Henry VIII. Sir Edmund was sentenced to have his right arm chopped off. When the sentence was to be carried out, Sir Edmund requested that his left arm be cut off so that he could continue to use his right arm, his sword arm, in the defense of his king. As a result of his unselfish request, Sir Edmund was granted a pardon. Believe it or not.
0: (laughs)
1: Is the shepherd and an inhabitant of carcosa by ambrose Bierce, and that brings us to this week's episode of the magnus archives up next is the magnus archives episode three across the street i'll be back after to introduce our old-time radio show for this week
7: Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 3, Across the Street Tell, regarding the alleged disappearance of her acquaintance, Graham Folger. Original statement given July 1st, 2007. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I first met Graham two years ago, more or less. It's hard to say exactly when we first met, or even started talking, as we were taking a class together at the time. I'm sure there was plenty of discussion or interaction before we learned each other's names, but I started uh, my course in September of 2005, so yeah, about two years. I decided to take a criminology course at Birkbeck University as a way of getting out of the rut with my office job. I'm an Associate Compliance Analyst at Deloitte, and if you think that sounds boring, well, yeah, it is. I knew a night course in criminology wasn't going to go anywhere, of course, even if I'd finished it. I just had to do something to find a bit of interest in my life. And he was either that or become an alcoholic, so... Sorry, I'm going off topic. I initially found Graham a bit off-putting, to be honest. He was a chain smoker and wore far too much deodorant to try and cover the smell. He was a bit older than me, maybe ten years or so. I never asked his age, I mean, we weren't that close. But he was starting to grey at the edges of his hair, and you could see that the tiredness on his face wasn't just from missing a single night's sleep. That's not to say he was bad-looking. He had a round, open sort of face and quite deep blue eyes, but very much not my type. He was well-spoken in group work, at least when he did speak. I think it came up once that he'd been to Oxford, though. I don't know what college. I'd noticed earlier that uh, during lectures, he always seemed to be scribbling furiously in a notebook, even when the lecturer wasn't speaking. At first, I just thought he was thorough, but I swear, I watched him fill a whole A5 notebook in one lecture. I remember it was a talk on youth and the justice system where the speaker was so slow that it wouldn't have filled that book even if Graham had been writing down literally every word. Not to mention, I asked to borrow his notes once for an essay, and he gave me this weird look and said he didn't take any notes. So yeah, point is, I wouldn't have called him a friend, but we got on all right. It was about four months into my course that I first encountered Graham outside of the university. I was riding the night bus home, having gone for a couple of drinks and missed the regular service. I live in Clapham, so there's a pretty regular night bus service headed there. Of course, regular also means drunken, angry vomiters. so yeah, I generally try to be unobtrusive, uh, sitting in a seat at the back of the top floor. It was there that I saw Graham, He was sat right at the front, staring out of the window. People watching is one of my guilty pleasures, so I decided not to say hello, at least not right away. I wasn't disappointed either, he was stranger alone than he had ever been during class. It was the middle of winter at this point, so the windows were solid with condensation, but he almost obsessively wiped it away from the one in front of him the moment it started to obscure his view. He seemed to be intently scanning the street for something, except that at times he would crane his neck to stare at the roofs of the buildings passing by. He seemed nervous as well, and was breathing way faster than normal, which fogged up his window even more. It was slightly alarming to watch, to be honest, and I finally made up my mind to tell him I was there. He jumped a bit when I greeted him, and I asked him if he was all right. He told me he didn't usually stay out so late and found nighttime public transport unsettling. I sat next to him and he seemed to get much more relaxed, so I didn't push the issue. We talked for a while about nothing in particular until the bus started to approach my stop. As I rose, I noticed that Graham had stood up at the exact same time as I had and I realised with some discomfort that we must live at the same stop. I liked the guy fine, don't get me wrong, but... I still didn't really feel okay with him knowing where I lived. But yeah, it was obvious that I'd gotten up to get off the bus, so I couldn't really ride on to the next stop. And it wasn't even that I felt unsafe with Graham. I'm just a private person. I decided to just walk back with him as far as necessary and uh, make sure he didn't see what building I went into. Maybe we weren't even walking in the same direction. Yeah, we were walking in exactly the same direction. We even seemed to be heading to the same street. It was at that point I felt a hand grab my shoulder and throw me into the road. I don't know how else to describe it. One moment I was walking along, the next I was flying towards the ground. It can't have been Graham. He was in front of me at the time, and I would have sworn there was nobody else on the street. There weren't any cars coming, but I hit my head hard. I think I must have been unconscious for a few seconds, because the next thing I remember is a panicky Graham on the phone to an ambulance. I tried to tell him I was all right, but... Didn't really manage to get the words out, which, yeah, probably meant I wasn't all right. The ambulance arrived in pretty good time, considering it was London on a Friday night, and the paramedics gave me a look-over. I was told that the injury itself wasn't serious, apparently head wounds always bleed that much, and it's nothing to panic about. But that I did have quite a nasty concussion, and shouldn't be left alone for the next few hours. Even though we were within sight of my door, I had for some reason settled upon the idea of Graham never knowing where I lived. In retrospect, this was likely the concussion talking, but the upshot was I agreed to go back to Graham's flat to recover. He was quite awkward about the whole thing and took great pains to assure me that there was nothing untoward about the situation. Apparently he was gay, which I'll admit did actually reassure me a bit. Still, it was clear this wasn't how either of us had hoped to be ending our nights. As it turned out, Graham's flat was directly across the street from mine, just a couple of floors lower. I wondered if I could see my window from his, and I remember I had the odd thought that if I had to look out, I'd need to be careful of his window box, as I could see the hooks attaching it to the frame. I asked him what he grew, and he gave me a look as though my concussion had stopped me making sense again. I mean, maybe it had, because when I looked back at the window, the hooks were gone, and there was no sign of any window box. At the time, I put it down to my head wound, and even now I'm not sure. The flat itself was a simple affair, quite big by London standards. It had only a few pieces of furniture and a lot of bookshelves, each covered with rows and rows of identical notebooks, with no apparent marking system or indication of contents. I started to ask about them, but my head throbbed, and I didn't feel up to any answer that might have been forthcoming. "'Graham led me to the sofa and disappeared to fetch me an ice pack and a mug of sugary tea. "'I graciously accepted both, though I wasn't in much of a mood to talk. "'Graham clearly felt awkward enough with the silence to do the talking for both of us, "'and I learned more about him over the next hour than I'd ever had a desire to know. "'Apparently his parents had died in a car accident a few years previously "'and had left a great deal of money and ownership of this flat.' He didn't need to work any more, and so had found himself somewhat adrift, taking night college courses to pass the time and broaden his mind, his words, not mine. He said he was trying to figure out what to actually do with his life. He talked on like this for a while, but I stopped listening about that point, as I would become enraptured by the table on which he would placed my tea. It was an ornate wooden thing, with a snaking pattern of lines weaving their way around towards the centre pattern was hypnotic and shifted as I watched it like an optical illusion. I found my eyes following the lines towards the middle of the table, where there was nothing but a small square hole. Graham noticed me staring and told me that interesting antique furniture was one of his few true passions. Apparently he'd found the table in a second-hand shop during his student days and fallen in love with it. It had been in pretty bad shape, but he'd spent a long time and a lot of money restoring it, though he'd never been able to figure out what was supposed to go in the centre. He assumed it was a separate piece and couldn't track it down. And yeah, like most of his conversation, I'd have found it dull even if I wasn't concussed, but by this time I was beginning to feel well enough to leave and started to make my excuses to Graham. He expressed his concern, said it hadn't been long enough as the medic suggested, but if I had to... Well, You get the picture. In the end, I did leave as I kept getting lost in the lines of the table, and the pipes outside of the window made such a weird noise that I didn't think staying was actually going to help me recover. I went straight home, making sure Graham couldn't see me from his window, and spent a few hours watching TV until I recovered enough to go to sleep. By the time I woke up the next morning, I was feeling more or less okay, though I kept a plaster on the cut on my forehead and tried not to think too much about the previous night. One evening, a few days later, though, I found myself staring out of my window, the one that faced the street, and I remembered how close Graham lived. I looked to see if I could figure out which window was his, and, yeah, sure enough, there it was. It was actually a remarkably clear view of his flat, and I could see him sat on the sofa, reading one of the notebooks from his bookshelves. I realised that if I could see him so clearly, he could likely see me just as well if he chose to look up, and... With some remnant of my apprehension from that Friday, I decided to turn off the light in my flat, so he wouldn't see me if he looked up. And then I went back to watching him. Yeah, I know, that sounds creepy. It really wasn't meant to be. I said earlier that I really enjoy people watching, and regardless of how boring he may have been to speak to, Graham was weirdly compelling to watch. So that's just what I did. And not just that night, either. Yeah, there's no non-sinister way to say that watching Graham became my hobby. It was strange, I'll admit it, but I just couldn't stop myself. I reasoned it wasn't watching him with any purpose or malice in mind. It was purely out of a detached interest in his life. And in my defence, I would have stopped a lot sooner if it hadn't been for the bizarre things he would do. He would constantly reorder his journals, without any apparent system of organisation, most of the time without even opening them. Sometimes... He would grab an apparently random notebook from the shelves and start scribbling in it, even though I could see that the page was already covered in writing. Once, and I swear this is true, I saw him take one of his notebooks and start to tear out the pages one at a time. And then, slowly and deliberately, he ate them. It must have taken him three hours to get through the whole book, but he didn't stop or pause. He just kept going. Even when he wasn't doing anything with the notebooks, there was an odd energy to him. From what I could see, he was constantly on edge, and jumped every time any loud noise passed on the street below. A police siren, a breaking bottle... Hell, I even saw him freak out over an ice cream truck once. Each time he'd leap to his feet, run to the window and start looking out, wildly craning his neck from side to side. Sometimes he'd look up, but I'd learned his patterns well enough to avoid being spotted. Then, all at once, he'd decide that there was no problem and go back to whatever he was doing before. And by whatever he was doing before, yeah, I mean nothing. He apparently didn't have a television or a computer. The only books he seemed to own were his own notebooks, and I only ever saw him eat takeaway food. I don't know how many times I watched him eat the same pizza, pepperoni with jalapeno peppers and anchovies. Yeah, I know. But the rest of the time he just sat there, smoking. Sometimes looking into space, sometimes staring at that wooden table of his. And yeah, I remembered the pattern was kind of hypnotic, and I spent more than a couple of minutes staring at it myself when I was there, but he did almost nothing else. Who knows? Perhaps he had a rich and fulfilling life outside of the flat. He certainly left it regularly enough, and yeah, I wasn't so far gone as to actually follow him. In fact, I always waited a good long while before leaving my own building to make sure I didn't bump into him. I still didn't want him to know where I lived, although now for very different reasons. In the end, though, it was a hobby, not an obsession, and often days would pass when I wouldn't see Graham at all. Maybe there was stuff I missed that would have explained his behaviour. I just wish I'd missed what happened on April 7th. Then maybe I'd have just thought he'd moved on, or... I don't know. I just wish I hadn't seen it. Work had been intense for a couple of months, with so many late nights I'd had to drop out of my course. It was just as well, really, as I hadn't actually spoken to Graham since the night I suffered my head injury. I think he still felt awkward about it, and I'd seen him do so many weird things alone in his flat that I think I'd have struggled to have a normal conversation with him. Anyway, this week I'd barely had time to eat, let alone do much in the way of Graham watching, so when I got home at about half ten at night, my first thought was just to fall into bed but it was Friday and I'd drunk a huge amount of coffee to keep going at work so yeah I was wired and looking forward to a long lie in the next day so when I saw Graham's light was still on I decided to spend a relaxing few minutes checking in on him his light may have been on but I couldn't see him and I wondered if perhaps he'd gone to bed and simply forgotten to turn it off more likely he was just in the bathroom so I decided to wait a while longer As I stared at that window, I realised there was something, I don't know, off about it. It looked different somehow, but I couldn't figure out what it was. Then I noticed it. At first, I'd just taken it to be a water pipe running down the side of the building, attached just below Graham's open window. The light from the street lamps didn't reach up to his fourth floor flat, and the window ledge cast a shadow that stopped the light from the room illuminating it, but it was long, straight, dark, and from what I could see it just looked like a pipe. Except I'd been watching that window for months now would have sworn that there had never been a pipe there before. And as I stared at it, it moved. It started to bend slowly. I realised I was looking at an arm. A long, thin arm. As it bent the joint close to where the arm ended, i I think I saw another joint further down also moving and bending what I could only assume were elbows. It hooked the end of the limb over through the window. When I say moved, that's not quite right. It shifted. Like when you stare at one of those uh, old magic eye paintings and you change from seeing one picture into seeing another. I never saw anything I could actually call a hand, but still it pulled itself through his window it took less than a second and I, I didn't get a good look at what it was I just saw these arms uh, legs at least four of them but there might have been more And they kind of folded themselves through the window in a flash of mottled gray I think that was the color it was mostly a silhouette and if there was a body or head it shifted inside faster than I could see it The moment it was inside, the light in Graham's flat went out and the window slammed down behind it. So yeah, I just kind of stood there for a long time trying to process what I'd just seen. I could make out some vague movements from inside Graham's flat, but couldn't see anything clearly. I finally decided I had to phone the police, though I didn't have any idea what to tell them. In the end, I simply said I'd seen someone suspicious climbing in through a fourth-floor window at his address and hung up before they could ask me who was calling. Then I waited and watched the dark and flat opposite. I couldn't look away. I was convinced that if I stopped staring that whatever the hell it was would fold itself back out, reach over and step into my home. Nothing came out. About ten minutes later I saw a police car driving up the street. No sirens, no flashing lights, but they were here and right away I started to feel better. Looking up, though, I saw the light had come on in Graham's flat. There was no sign of the thing I'd seen climb in, but as the police pressed the buzzer outside his building, I saw someone walking towards the door to let them in. It wasn't Graham. I can't stress enough how much this was not Graham. He looked completely different. He was maybe a few inches shorter and had a long square face topped with curly blonde hair where Graham's had been dark and cut short he was dressed in Graham's clothes though I recognised the shirt from my months of watching but he was not Graham I watched as not Graham walked to the door and let the two police officers in they talked for a while and not Graham looked concerned and together they started to search the flat I watched, waiting for the thing to emerge or, or for them to find the real Graham but they didn't At one point, I saw one of the police pick up a dark red shape that I recognised as a passport. My heart beat faster as I saw her open it and look at Not Graham, clearly comparing, waiting for the moment when she detected the imposter. But instead she just laughed, shook Not Graham's hand, and they left. I watched the police car drive away, feeling a sense of helplessness. And when I looked up, he was standing at Graham's window looking back at me. I stood there frozen as his wide, staring eyes met mine, and a cold, toothy smile spread across his face. Then, in one swift motion, he drew the curtains, and was gone. I didn't sleep that night, and I never saw Graham again. I saw this new person, though, all the time. For the next week, I'd see him taking out large, heavy-looking rubbish bags several times a day took me a while to realise he was disposing of Graham's old notebooks. But soon enough the flat was empty of them. I think he did other redecorating, but I never got a good look, as the only time he had his curtains open was when he was staring intently at my flat, which he now did every night. I tried to find evidence of the old Graham, but anything I could find online with a picture, it was always a picture of this new person. I even asked some of my old classmates, but... None of them seemed to remember him at all. Eventually I moved. I really liked my old place in Clapham, but, yeah, it just got too much. The last straw was when I was leaving for work one morning and didn't realise until too late that not Graham had left his building at the same time. He greeted me by name. and His voice was nothing like it should have been. I started to make my excuses and hurry away, but he just stared at me and smiled. "'Isn't it funny, Amy, how you can live so near and never notice? "'I'll need to return the visit someday.' "'I moved out a week later, and I never saw him again.' "'Statement ends. "'I'd be tempted to dismiss this as hallucination "'resulting from long-term head trauma complications, "'but Tim came through with this one "'and managed to get hold of Ms Patel's medical records.' God knows how he got them, but he better not be using Institute funds to woo filing clerks again. The records just don't support the idea she was suffering those sort of problems. Not to mention I usually trust co-worker testimony as far as I can burn it, but her job really doesn't seem like the sort you could do with a compromised sense of reality. Miss Patel has refused our request for a follow-up interview and seems to be trying to distance herself from these events. Graham Folger definitely existed, and appears to match up with her story. According to coroner's records, Desmond and Samantha Folger, his parents, died on the M1 near Sheffield on August 4th, 2001, and Graham Folger's name appears on the register of several colleges and universities in and around London over the next few years. The flat she mentioned did belong to Mr Folger, but was sold through an agency in early 2007. All the photographs we've been able to source seem to match the description of this Not Graham, that Miss Patel described, except for a few Polaroids enclosed, which appear to be from the late eighties, and show the two parents along a dark-haired teenager who doesn't match the later photos at all. There doesn't seem to be much more to be done here. Miss Patel, like so many of our subjects, seems to have been more interested in giving her statement as a form of personal closure, rather than as the start of a serious investigation— She wasn't even interested when Sasha told her we'd managed to locate what we believed to be one of Graham Folger's journals. Doubt it would have done much good, it just says the same thing on every page. The words, keep watching, over and over again. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof.
5: This is Ripley's Believe It or Not.
6: The parish clerks of Hungerford, England, for 800 years, have visited each household on the second Tuesday after Easter to collect a penny from each man for church repairs and a kiss from each woman, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the Iron Man. Sir Thomas Overbury certainly deserves to be called a man of iron. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London and for three months and 17 days was fed a daily diet of hemlock, arsenic, nitric acid, ground diamonds, and mercury. Enough poison to have killed 20 men. But Sir Thomas refused to die. Finally, an injection of a powerful corrosive killed him. Later, the guards who'd been bribed to poison him were executed. Believe it or not.
1: back once more. That was The Magnus Archives, Episode 3, Across the Street, brought to us courtesy of The Rusty Quill. That brings us to this week's old-time radio episode. This week's episode comes to us from CBS Radio Mystery Theater, which ran the 70s and was an hour-long program. This show was chosen specifically because it is an adaptation of a story by our author for this week. Up next the CBS Radio Mystery Theater's adaptation of The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter by Ambrose Bierce. I'll be back after to close out the show.
8: Radio Mystery Theater presents. Come in. Welcome. I'm E. G. Marshall. This is a story about conscience that small, still voice within most of us that whispers to us and tells us what is right and what is wrong. It has been said that conscience is God's presence in man. A man without a God is a man without a conscience. If this is so, how then could it be possible for a man of God to love what he believes is right and at the same time yield to what the rest of the world considers
4: wrong? You have brought shame on yourself. And on all of us, Brother Ambrosius. Now, what have you to say?
9: I meant no harm, Father Andreas. The girl is so young, her father's not well. And she came to the church alone. What
4: devil possessed you that you should walk into the house of the Lord side by side with the daughter of the hangman? I pitied her, and I followed my conscience, Father. Your conscience? Your conscience is the voice of God. Not of your own making. Why do you not accept my censure and say that you repent. My feelings for Benedicta are mercy and compassion. Would you have me repent those? You leave me no choice. You will be confined to your cell where, God willing, fasting and self-chastisement will lead to the clearing of your mind and the salvation of your eternal soul.
8: The mystery drama The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter was especially adapted from the Ambrose Bierce classic for the Mystery Theater by Arnold and Stella Moss. It stars Christopher Tabori. It is sponsored in part by Luden's Medicated Cough Drops and Buick Motor Division. I'll be back shortly with Act One.
5: Breaking up is hard to do, but your True Value hardware store offers the True Test 5 horsepower Garden Tiller... To make breaking up almost any kind of ground easier. Hi, Pat Summerall to tell you about it. The TrueTest tiller's engine weight is directly over its 16 tines for extra stability. High horsepower means you can till at slower speeds without stalling. It has power reverse, so it's easy to maneuver when you run up against a fence or come to the end of a row. It lets you adjust both tilling depth and tilling width. And all the controls are conveniently located on its handle. Yes, breaking up is hard to do if you don't have the TrueTest 5-horsepower garden tiller to help you. True Value Hardware Stores offer it at a price that's even slightly lower than last year's, just $239.88. This 5-horsepower model is part of a complete selection of power garden tillers at participating True Value Hardware Stores. And remember, you can charge it on Master Charge at many
10: stores. I'm clean with Magicist Now, when you can really use it, Magicist is making it more attractive than ever to get your whole house Magicist clean. Hi, this is Carmelita Pope with good news. With any order for cleaning or when you buy a Magicist rug, you'll receive a 16 ounce bottle of Sparkle Glass Cleaner and Sprayer at no additional cost. Call Magicist for pickup and delivery of your rugs and draperies, or save 20 percent by bringing them into Magicist and get your Sparkle and Sprayer. Have Magicist come to your home or office to clean your carpeting or furniture and get your Sparkle and Sprayer. Call Magicist for pickup or delivery or more information. Chicago phones, 378-8600. Suburbs, see your phone book. Master Charge and Bank AmeriCard welcome. Come clean with Magicist and get your bottle of sparkle glass cleaner and sprayer at no additional cost. And remember, Magicist sells rugs, too. Come clean with Magicist and get your whole house Magicist clean.
6: The
8: Bavarian town of Passau in the southwest corner of Germany still retains the charm and the enchantment of medieval days. Its streets are narrow and winding. Quaint archways join one house to another as the beautiful Danube washes its riverbanks. 300 years ago, Passau was ruled by the firm hand of a prince of the church and was the busy center of religious activity. On the first day of May in the year 1680, two monks in their early twenties, Friar Ambrosius and Friar Romanus, members of the Order of St. Francis, were summoned to an audience with their superior. You may
9: enter. Who is that? I cannot see your faces very well. It is Brother Romanus and I, Brother Ambrosius. You sent for us, Reverend Father.
4: I am pleased with the good reports I have received. Your humility, your dedication to prayer, your help to the poor have prepared you for further test of your vocation. Yes, Father? You and Brother Romanus have been assigned to the monastery at Berchtesgarten, high in our beloved Bavarian Alps. The monastery
9: at Berchtesgaden. A place of bare and dismal mountains. The forests are said to be haunted by
11: evil spirits. Tales are told of demons who dwell in a bottomless black lake.
4: It is unbecoming of you to fear old wives' tales about demons and malevolent spirits. We understand, Father.
9: If we wish to become priests in the service of God, we must do as we are bidden. Forgive
4: us, Reverend, Father... We will obey. The way is long. The road is hard. The snow from the towering ice-covered mountains will be melting at this time of the year. And you must place yourselves in the hands of God and have faith. We will do as you say, Father. We will pray for strength and courage. You should be safe in the hands of Father Andreas in Berchtesgaden in less than a week. When do we leave? After morning prayers. oh, one uh, One last thing. Yes, Father? Whatever happens on the way, I remind you... That faith is the beginning and the end of everything. The strength of youth. The support of age. The pillar of life itself. May we have your blessings. You are the children of God... And he will protect you. Within an hour, Brother
9: Romanus and I were on our way. The first few days of our journey made us forget the sadness of parting. Ah, how bright the colors of the countryside are. The air smells so clean. The first signs of spring. How good the earth is as God made it. Every blade of grass, every flower... Each living thing, a hymn of praise to his glory. But on the fifth day, all was changed. We found ourselves high in the mountains, in a freezing alpine wilderness, untouched as yet by spring. We were struggling against a blinding snowstorm. Stay as close to me as you can, Brother Romanus. Be careful where you place your feet. I can just barely see you ahead of me. Pass over the mountains, cannot be much farther. We must go forward or we shall freeze to death. Oh. What, what's that? It sounds like falling ice and snow. Like sliding rocks. An avalanche. St. Francis, protect us. Let us pray, Romance. Oh, dear Lord, dear in Lord, Lord in heaven. Now I'll let Thomas, where are you? The Lord be praised, I'm unharmed. And you, Ambrosius... I've been spared, too. It is a miracle the avalanche did not touch us. Strange how still everything has become. The snow and wind have stopped as suddenly as they began. Huge trees plucked from the earth by their roots, hurled down the mountainside. Ambrosius, we, we, we've arrived at the pass we were searching for. The way over the mountain to garden. Twisted, gorgeous, tangled, ill-smelling forest. The mouth of hell must look like this. Why is the air so cold and hard to breathe? There's nothing to fear, Romanus. Lift up your crucifix and hold it before you as we walk. We must move on. Ambrosius, look above us. Those great, ugly birds of prey. They must have startled them from their nests. They sit like mournful sentinels. Waiting for us to take one false step... to plunge us to our death. That will not happen, Romanus. You and I have a mission to fulfill. Nothing can bar our way. No bird, no beast, no devil. The next morning, we moved safely down the treacherous mountain path. As the darkness disappeared we saw before us a gently flowing stream spanned by a small bridge. On the opposite bank was a meadow covered with beautiful flowers. For several days we had seen no dwelling, no human being, but now we beheld a sight that made our blood run cold. Oh, I feel faint, Brother Ambrosius. Look there. On the other side of the bridge, in the center of the meadow, A gallows And hanging from it the lifeless body of a man A rope round his neck The face looks toward us as if it had been turned to welcome us The body is not yet stiff with death He must have been hanged this very day But why here? Why should there be a
11: gallows here where there seems to be
9: (laughs) Whose voice is that? A dead man swings from the gallows and someone sings Another evil spirit (laughs) The smell of death is in the air
10: You wicked bird! Let us
9: hide you. ourselves behind these bushes go, with those
10: go, Only heaven
9: knows what creature of Satan that girl may really be. How beautiful she is. See how she chases the vultures from my poor lifeless body and places flowers at the foot of the gallows.
10: Go, you terrible
9: bird. Leave this place. Let the dead man find his rest. Ambrosius, Go. The yes. trembling go. has Leave suddenly become like ice around bird. me. But I am warm. The sun feels good to me. The chill is worse than that of the highest mountain. It cannot be a human chill, or I would feel it too. No human chill? What are you thinking? There is an ancient belief that when a chill seizes a human body for no good reason... Yes, I remember. It is a sign that someone standing close by is stepping on the very spot that will someday be your grave. How strange... The chill has gone as suddenly as it came. The girl is crossing the bridge, Ambrosius. She's coming this way. She is the most beautiful creature I have ever seen.
10: (laughs) Good morning, holy brothers.
9: Why do you laugh?
10: You can come out from your hiding places. I have known you were there from the very start. Why were you hiding?
9: Well, we did not wish to frighten you.
10: I am not easily frightened.
9: The man who was hanging from the gallows... Yes? Do you know why he was hanged?
10: He killed a man. That is why. A murderer? They quarreled over the love of a woman, so they say. And he plunged a knife into the heart of the other man.
9: Did you know him? Are you related to him? Oh, no. Well, then why do you bring flowers for him?
10: No one else will. I always do when someone has been hanged. I bring the flowers and frighten away the ravens and the vultures. Who are you? Benedicta.
9: Oh, that's a beautiful name. I am Brother Ambrosius. This is Brother Romanus. You chase the vultures who wish to feed on the bodies of those who've been hanged. Why does your mother allow this?
10: My mother is dead.
9: You have a father? Yes. Then let us take you to him. You should not be wandering about alone. There may be dangers here for you.
10: Oh, I could not be safer. You see that clearing through the trees? If you look closely, you will see a hut.
9: It looks more fit for animals than for humans.
10: That is where I live, with my father.
9: That is your home? Yes. You have no neighbors? None. Are you and your father so poor that you must live so close to the gallows, in such a miserable hovel?
10: He is not well paid for the work he does.
9: As you see from our robes, we are in the service of St. Francis. God has placed us here in Bettis Garden to help others. Perhaps we can help you. Who are you, Benedicta? And who is your father?
10: My father is the hangman.
12: The hangman?
10: And I am the hangman's daughter.
8: The sins of the father shall be visited upon the child. What if a child is punished and humiliated not for a father's sins, but because his livelihood is considered loathsome and even unholy by the rest of the community, like a hangman? I'll be back shortly with Act Two. You can have great taste, lots of great taste and taste with food. Mm -hmm. They're medicated cough drops with great
1: taste in every box. Wild cherry, sweet and savory. Menthol, cool and flavory. Honey, the way you wish with lemon or licorice. All oh, you can have great taste. Lots of great taste
6: and taste with Luden. Ludens, the medicated cough drops that don't taste medicated. They taste great. Use only as directed
0: hey you kids
8: you go play somewhere else now who am i kidding where are those kids gonna find a place to stay out of trouble around here tough problems call for real solutions not just talk If your community has a problem, you need action. Action is skilled volunteers of all ages working together to help solve tough community problems. Write Action, Department Q, Washington, D.C., 20525. Between us, there's
5: got to be a solution. This is a public service of this station and the Advertising Council.
12: The name is Beverly. No, this Beverly isn't a girl. It's a factory-approved auto-tune-up shop established 20 years ago. Beverly Auto-Tune-Up Service in Oaklawn, Illinois at 4545 West 91st Street, two blocks east of Cicero Avenue. The phone number is 636-0808. When your car isn't running right and needs a tune-up, you don't have to go through the inconvenience of taking it someplace, leaving it all day, being without it, and picking it up. It can be done in 45 minutes while you wait. Call Beverly and make a definite appointment for a specific time when you get there the team at beverly starts working on your car right away there's no waiting you can watch the work being done and ask questions if you like 45 minutes later your car is finished they use modern equipment and genuine factory parts the hours are 7 30 a.m to 4 p.m so stop in and look it over and remember beverly is open saturday why not put beverly's name and number in your little black book Beverly Auto Tune-Up Service, 4545 West 91st Street, Oak Lawn, Illinois.
8: We return to the year 1680. The two young monks, Ambrosius and Romanus, have been exposed to many strange happenings since they left the security of the Passau Monastery. Not least among these, for Friar Ambrosius, has been his first encounter with a beautiful young girl. But remembering his holy mission, he tightens the hempen cord that encircles his slim waist and proceeds with Friar Romanus toward their destination, the Monastery of Berchtesgaden, high in the Bavarian Alps.
9: Ambrosius, why did you offer that girl your friendship? Why not? Was the daughter of the hangman, you know as well as I, that she's considered impure and unchristian. Oh, but she's so young, Romanus, innocent and beautiful. In the eyes of the church, the hangman and all his family are an abomination. Why else are they made to sit apart from all the others in the darkest corner of the church? Why should Benedicta deserve such a fate? That is not for us to decide. A hangman, after all, is only a tool of the law. He must do as he is told. And we must do the same. It is not for us to question. Put Benedicta out of your thoughts before she takes possession of your soul. Come, brother. Father Andreas awaits us. <laughs>
4: Welcome to our monastery of Berchtesgaden.
9: I'm pleased to be here, Father Andres. And
2: I, Reverend Father. It
4: will be a change from the life you've been accustomed to. Our village people here are mostly salt miners, a proud and stubborn group. We will do our best, Reverend Father. You have only to instruct us. The salt master rules the village. He's a man of power and authority. Keep out of his way if you can. You're not listening, Brother Ambrosius. Your mind seems to be elsewhere. Oh, oh. forgive me, Father. The long journey has wearied me. I was saying, the salt master is not easy to deal with. Nor is his son, Rocius. A young man not much older than you. Handsome, willful, undisciplined. He, too, exercises much power. He also creates problems. What kind of problems? Whether a young, pretty maiden's...
5: He's quick to pick a quarrel. We shall avoid him. Uh, Have we your permission to leave?
4: You may go, Romanus. I shall be here whenever you need me.
9: Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Father. If I may, I will go too?
4: Uh, not yet, Brother Ambrosius. Something seems to be disturbing you. Perhaps I can be of help. Father Andreas, there is a serious matter that I... I... Yes?
9: Yes? I believe I may be in deep trouble. What have you done? It's nothing that I have done. It is my faults that trouble me. Oh, With God's help,
4: we can take care of that. I am full of fear. So much so, I cannot reveal to you what I should. Cannot? you need have no fear of me. I'm frightened of myself, Father. Let me go to my cell to meditate and pray. Evening prayers. You may go to your cell. Thank you, Father. And uh, remember, Brother Ambrosius, there are no secrets in this monastery.
9: My spirit remained in turmoil. I could not find the strength to confess to Father Andreas. Why can I not wipe out all thoughts of Benedicta from my mind? On my way to morning prayers I saw her standing outside the church Alone The square was filled with people But they avoided her as if she were a leper Compassion filled my heart And compelled me to approach her God's greeting, Benedicta Are
10: you afraid to speak to me? We are being watched, Brother Ambrosius I fear for you, not for myself
9: Do good, obey the Lord, and fear no one. I thank you, my Lord. I am no Lord, Benedicta. I am a servant of God.
10: I must go into the church. See how they are watching us and whispering? Come, I will go with you. It is not wise, Brother Ambrosius. They will make you pay dearly for this. You have brought
4: shame on yourself, Brother Ambrosius. And on all of us. What devil possessed you that you should walk into the house of the Lord side by side with the daughter of the hangman?
9: I pitied her. The people treat her as if she were mortal sin itself.
4: You have angered and outraged everyone in Berthesgarten. The saltmaster and his son Rochus have already brought complaints against you. I followed my conscience, father. Your conscience? Your conscience is the voice of God, not of your own making. Now, well, what has come over you that you show so little respect, so little humility? Why do you not accept my censure and say that you repent?
9: I ask your forgiveness, Father,
4: but I cannot say that I repent.
9: My feelings for Benedicta are mercy and compassion. Would you have me repent, though? Hold your tongue! But, Father, I... Silence!
4: I have heard enough. You sadden and anger me beyond patience and endurance. I'm sorry, Father. You leave me no choice. I must commit you to a long period of strict atonement and hard penance. If it be your will... You will be confined to your cell... where silence, fasting, and self-chastisement... will bring you to your senses.
9: away from the beautiful outdoors which i loved denying myself food and drink i knelt day and night in endless prayer until a high fever and delirium came upon me when the fever finally subsided i stood one day at the grating of my cell window looking out at the high mysterious mountains on which the monastery had been built so that no unwanted visitor could disturb our seclusion
10: brother ambrosius can you hear me
9: What evil spirit torments me with Benedictus'
10: voice. I am no evil spirit. I am here at the bars of your window.
9: No, that's not possible. No one can climb these rocks.
10: I can and I have. Look up. You see, I am standing on a narrow ledge outside the window.
9: How did you get here? Why have you come?
10: I heard you were ill. I brought you a gift for your goodness to me. A gift? I will toss it through the bars of your window. There. Do you like it?
9: Oh, it is the most strangely beautiful bunch of flowers I've ever seen. There's no fragrance. Only woolly leaves that are as soft and white as snow.
10: It is called Edelweiss. Edelweiss? It grows only among the highest and most fearful rocks.
9: Oh, then it was dangerous for you to gather them.
10: (laughs) I'm as sure-footed as any goat.
9: Now promise me you will never again climb these evil rocks. I fear for your safety.
10: I must go, Brother Ambrosius. They must not find me here. Darkness is beginning to fall. I will see you soon again. Who knocks?
4: It is I, Brother Romanos. I bring your food and drink.
9: Come in. Please, set it down.
4: Why is your face so flushed? Your eyes so bright? Have you a fever again? Oh, no, no.
9: It's it's only... Are you hiding behind your back? A bunch of Edelweiss. Where did you get it? Benedicta brought it for me. She threw it in through the bars of my window. Benedicta? No girl could scale those mountain peaks. She was here, standing on the ledge just outside my window. Let me have the Edelweiss. It is against the rule of austerity to have flowers in your cell. It can only lead to more trouble for you. Will you tell Father Andreas? Do not be concerned. I will put them on the altar in the church. Then let them be an offering in Benedicta's name. No, Brother Ambrosius, it will be an offering in your name. It is you who need it even more than Benedicta. Why do you say that? Because in Bectus' garden, these flowers are a sign of faithful love. Faithful love? Young men present them to the girls they wish to marry. What are you saying? However you came by them, Brother, these flowers are not meant for you. Weeks later, I was released from my solitary cell in order to help at a great festival that the monastery was celebrating. The entire village gathered in the square to watch the holy procession. At the feast, I served platters piled high with steaming food and poured endless goblets of the brown and bitter drink that they all loved. As I did so, a handsome young man approached me. A wild-looking girl clung to his arm. Are you the monk,
1: Ambrosius? Ambrosius?
9: I'm Friar Ambrosius Mm -hmm. The same who gave offense to this village some weeks ago With his attentions to the hangman's daughter Oh, let the handsome monk
10: be Shut up, Angela
9: I'm the son of the salt master My name is Rocious I've heard of you Mm -hmm. Then hear more If you ever again show friendship for Benedicta I shall teach you a lesson you will not soon forget I intend no offense to anyone, my lord.
10: Rochus, take my hand and dance with me. Now
9: find yourself another dancing partner, Amiel. I have
10: other plans. Someone is waiting for me. Brother Ambrosius. Yes? Rochus has his eye on the hangman's daughter. Warn her against him.
9: Why do you tell me this?
10: I love Rochus. And she will listen to you. Look in the clearing. The full moon shining down on them. They are dancing together. Brucius and Benedicta. He ordered her to. No one refuses him. And besides, look at her. She does not seem unwilling.
9: Her eyes are looking straight into his. There's a smile on her face. No
10: one resists the saltmaster's son. See how closely he holds her. Stop them, Brother Ambrosius. Stop them. He shall not have her. I shall see her pretty face mocked with blood before he takes her. Musicians, stop playing. Stop the playing in the name of God, stop.
9: Benedicta, Benedicta. Benedicta. Where is everyone? Where have they gone? Why is it so silent? Why am I so alone? Amula. Amula, where are you? Father Andreas, I beg of you not to believe the words of Amula. She has borne false witness against Benedicta.
4: Amula would not lie even against the hangman's daughter. But
9: Benedicta did not act in a shameless manner with all the men. She only danced
4: with Rochus. Can you not understand that it is unbecoming of you to defend her? Are you possessed of demons? But who will protect her against Amula's hate? I speak the truth. And what would you have me do? I beg you, Reverend Father, be her protector. I cannot, and I will not. For your sake as well as her own, Benedicta must learn her lesson. Learn her lesson? Tomorrow they take her to the pillory and the whipping post.
9: But the whipping post is intended for...
4: For... For... girls who behave in a shameless manner. The salt master has ordered it. She will be stoned. And what of her poor father? Her father will be with her. He will lead her through the streets by a rope around her waist. It is the duty of his hangman's office.
9: What beasts we human beings can be sometimes.
4: What misery and injustice there is in this world. Say no more, brother Ambrosius perform the duties of your office and let the world and the hangman perform theirs.
9: But how can I do nothing to prevent
4: Benedict's public disgrace? You will do nothing. You will be locked in your cell. God and St. Francis forgive you, Brother Ambrosius. I cannot.
9: Dear God in heaven, heed my prayer. Bless Benedicta in her time of trouble. Give her strength that she may bear the trials that are put upon her. Give me light that I may walk the right path. For I am filled with a tumult of emotions and confusion. Can Father Andreas be right? Do I love Benedicta as a man loves a woman? Forgive me if I sin. But I cannot put Benedicta out of my mind. Try as I will.
8: James Montgomery once wrote Prayer is the soul's sincere desire Uttered or unexpressed The motion of a hidden fire That trembles in the breast So it was with young Friar Ambrosius Long, long ago He prayed and fasted And fasted and prayed Until one day he believed he had an answer I'll tell you more about it when I return shortly with Act Three. Isn't it nice to know you're
9: free, to see the things you want to
0: see, To touch to hide you there to reach, to know you're all that you can be.
8: Need a full-size car? Well, you came to the right place. Buick. Take Saber, a genuine family car with lots of nifty Buick touches and room for six. Or the elegant Electra, the car that wrote the book on Buick luxury. Or Riviera, the luxury car that's also a great personal road car. Full-size bewings. If you're looking for a place where you and your free spirit can really get together, this is it. How it's gonna be your spirits
11: free.
12: This is WBBM Chicago.
11: Northwest Federal Savings presents the brand new American tradition, Spoon Rings, in genuine sterling silver by Oneida. A gleaming example of this new folk art can be yours free when you save $1,000 or only $3 with a $250 savings deposit. See the beautiful heirloom collection at any one of our four savings centers in the great Northwest Territory. You'll find four distinctive designs to reflect your own personality or your thoughtfulness in a gift. The weight tells you its quality. The sharp detail tells you its oneida. Remember, you get one free when you save $1,000 or $3 with a $250 deposit. So come to Northwest Federal. Start your own American tradition. One ring per family. Some designs limited. Irving Park, west of Cicero, in Des in Norwich, and Arlington Heights. It's Northwest Federal Savings Time, 63 hours a
0: week.
8: Tormented by Benedicta's public disgrace and weakened by the long rigors of solitary prayer and fasting, there was a recurrence of illness and fever in Ambrosius. On the one hand, he yearned to protect Benedicta. On the other, he was relentlessly pursued by his religious conscience. Torn both in mind and body, the young monk appeared before his superior.
9: May I speak with you, Father Andreas? I am here to be of help whenever I can. Since I have recovered from my illness and delirium, the other friars look at me strangely, as if they no longer regard me as one of them. They avoid me whenever they can.
4: I am aware of that, and I have given it much thought. You are to leave us for a season.
9: Leave the monastery?
4: To dwell in greatest solitude among the highest mountains. There, God will restore both your physical and spiritual strength. I submit to your will, your reverence. Do you wish to discuss the tales that are told of the evil spirits that inhabit those high peaks?
9: If it is God's will, I will escape their spells and enchantments and come back to the monastery, as you would have me. Someone will show me the way?
4: Yes, and then leave you. As you say, Father. And uh, Ambrosius, my son. Yes, Your Reverence. Whatever demons or devils men may encounter in high mountains... Remember, there are none so evil as those we find within ourselves.
9: Uphill and down, through shadowy forests and across dark ravines, my guide led me to my new destination. We crossed a fearful lake in a clumsy little boat and saw strange objects become dimly visible and then disappear. Trees, half-submerged, clawed the air like bones of some monstrous skeleton. I stared awestruck at the terrifying stone peaks piled to the sky. He led me to a miserable hut built of rough rock, where a narrow stone bench was to be my bed.
10: You must be cold and hungry, Brother Ambrosius, after your long trip.
9: Benedicta's voice? It cannot be.
10: You will not be alone, my good friend. I will be here whenever you need me.
9: How can such things be? Where are you, Benedicta?
10: Warm yourself by the fire. Look, I have built one for you.
9: Let me see your face. If only for a moment, I...
10: You will find warm food in those pots hanging over the fire. And on the stone table, there is a pan of fresh milk and a piece of yellow butter.
9: But they were not there when I came in. How did they come here?
10: I brought them and some fresh-baked black bread and a fine white cheese.
9: Thank you, Benedicta.
10: Eat, Brother Ambrosius. The Black Lake journey is a hard one. Did you know it is said that the lake reaches straight down to hell?
9: I do not fear such things.
10: These mountains are filled with dangers, even for holy men.
9: Show yourself, Benedicta. I will not eat the food or drink the milk until I have seen you. No, don't leave, Benedicta. There is something you must tell me.
10: Goodbye, Brother Ambrosius. There are things that I must do.
9: The next morning, I felt as one in a dream. A fire burned brightly in the fireplace. Bread, butter, small cakes, and fresh milk were again on the stone table. There was even fresh dried grass for my hard stone bed. As I ate hungrily...
10: I am glad to see you eating, Brother Ambrosius. You will need your strength in this new way of life.
9: The sound of a voice is welcome in these lonely mountains... But it is not enough, Benedicta.
10: It must suffice.
9: Why? If only you would tell me why.
10: I cannot. It is not for you to question. Look. I have brought you a short pointed spade and a hempen bag. When you have finished eating, I will show you where the roots grow that you must dig for Father Andreas.
9: I am grateful for your help.
10: Meanwhile, here are some roots I gathered for you to taste. You should know the flavor as well as how they look. Bite into them, Brother Ambrosius.
9: Mm. Mmm. They're like... It's like nothing I've ever tasted before.
10: Good. Are they not good?
9: Indeed, Benedicta strange but good Uh, very very good the next thing I knew I was on the brink of an abyss directly above the terrible black lake on another cliff overhanging the water I could see a few cows and sheep grazing in an unexpected pasture a thin column of smoke was rising from a perilously placed stone cabin. Leaning against a tree, her face pale as marble, her eyes sunken and sad, her hair flowing over her shoulders like threads of gold. Was Benedicta? <laughs> Tears streamed down her cheeks. <laughs> Benedicta, what has happened? What are you doing so far away from home? Oh, Why do you weep so?
10: My, my father is dead. God, rest his soul.
9: Dad. Oh, poor Benedicta. I show your affliction. How did he die?
10: Of grief, as my mother did before him. He would not kill a worm or a beetle. Yet he was compelled to kill men with a hangman's rope. Oh, brother Ambrosius, he was unhappy in every way.
9: Do not weep so, Benedicta.
10: His father and his father's father before him. Hangman, all, and the awful inheritance fell to him. Shh,
9: Benedicta, hush. <laughs> Dry your tears. Oh, Brother Ambrosius,
10: it was the salt miners who killed my parents as surely as it was they who unjustly laid hands on me.
9: You must find it in your heart to forgive them, Benedicta. Terrible injustices have been committed against you and your family, but you must trust in God.
10: What is to become of me in this lonely and desolate place? There is only one person who cares to see me
9: and he... We will help each other, Benedicta. I will pray to God and he will surely show us the way.
10: Evil attaches to everything I touch. No. I had better go.
9: No. One moment, Benedicta. There's something I must ask you. What is it? Although now I see you clearly, why could I not see you when you came to my hut? Why is it I could only hear your voice?
10: I did not Come to your hut, brother Ambrosius
9: It is a sin to lie
10: I speak the truth I did not come to your hut Forgive me But I must go now Rocious is waiting for me
9: Rocious The name of the salt master's son Struck against my heart like a stone That night my hut seemed too narrow to hold me The air too heavy and hot to sustain life Going outside, I lay upon a rock and studied the sky, dark and glittering with stars. It was unmistakably the voice of Benedicta. Now it came from one direction, now from another. It came from the earth, from the air, from the sky. Wait,
11: Benedicta, I'm coming to you. You've only to show me the way.
9: I fled into the coolness of the forest along the Black Lake, stumbling and falling over rocks and tree stumps. My limbs were bruised, my robe torn. Suddenly, against the starry sky, I saw the outline of a hunting lodge. A well-worn path led to Benedicta's cabin. Before it, in the bright moonlight, stood Rochus.
11: What brings you here, Friar Ambrosius? When last I saw you, you were safely cloistered in the monastery at
9: Berchtesgaden, where you belong. Where is Benedicta? Answer me, Rocious. Must
11: you meddle
9: always in other people's lives, you and what you call by the name of virtue? You may despise me if you wish. But you will not harm Benedicta. I do not wish to hurt a man of the cloth, but I am not known for my patience. I carry a knife, and on occasion I do not hesitate to use it. You will not go to Benedicta's cabin. I will not fight with knives, Rochus. but unarmed and equal. We will fight to the death if you wish, and the Lord shall decide. Oh, you're a brave monk. Very well. I will toss my knife to the ground. But I warn you, you face a strong enemy. I, I know the edges of these precipices are far better than you. I shall make you a grave in the hell that is at the bottom of the Black Lake. I cannot breathe. Your knees are pressing on my chest. We are not playing games, good friar. I have a longing for your throat. I will f- free myself. See how close you are to the edge of the precipice? I can hurl you down like a small stone if I choose. But I will not. I do not really care to take your life. For the truth is, you cannot stand in my way. You will leave Benedicta to me, for she is already mine. Benedicta is yours. I've kept her waiting long enough. You may rise, Brother Ambrosius. The Lord, as you said, has decided. Why did the Lord allow Rochus to overcome me? Why move him to spare my life? Some power impelled me to look down at my feet. There lay the answer. The knife that Rochus had flung to the ground. I saw plainly as in a vision the act which I had been preserved to do. Later that night, I went to Benedicta's cabin. I could hear her singing. As when I first saw her standing beneath the gallows. Open the door, Benedicta. It is I, Brother Ambrosius.
10: Why have you come at such a late hour?
9: Let me in, Benedicta. My errand is brief.
10: You look distressed, Brother Ambrosius. Can I bring you food or drink? Your face is full of happiness.
9: And only a short time ago I left you in sorrow and despair.
10: Why have you come here? Oh, you are pale and shake with cold.
9: I'm here because God sent me. Tell me why you were singing, Benedicta. Tell me why you look so radiant. Is it because you are the mistress of Rochus?
10: I sing because tonight... I am happy. Happy? I am sorry to hurt you, but I am not ashamed. Rochus has been here. He has gone to Garden to persuade his father to remove the curse of the hangman from my life.
9: Oh, foolish Benedicta. There is not much time left. Kneel before me, that I may forgive your sins.
10: You frighten me. I have never seen you like this.
9: You need not be afraid. I here and now give you absolution without repentance. Huh? I free your soul from the taint of sin. Because, Benedicta, you will atone with your blood and your life.
10: You have drawn a knife.
9: Do you recognize it? It belongs to Rochus.
10: What do you mean to do? Rochus? Rochus, help me! Help me! Uh, my blood is on your hair, brother approach. Uh, I love you, Benedicta. Uh, and
4: <sighs> what terrible thing have you done, Ambrosius? I cannot wash the blood from my hands, Father Andreas, nor the
9: stains from my garments. I've tried. But I cannot
4: Whosoever slays a fellow being He shall be slain That is the law of God And of man
9: I am prepared, Reverend Father
4: You will first be taken to the tower And then tomorrow at sunrise You will be led to the gallows And hanged by the neck until dead The ways
9: of the Lord are mysterious When I saw Benedicta for the first time An icy chill shook me from head to toe. Ice filled my veins. She was standing beneath the gallows. And Brother Romano said that she was standing on my grave.
4: Do do you have a last request, my son? Yes, Father. What is it? The vultures.
9: After I am hanged, perhaps someone could chase them away from my poor dead body.
8: And so, according to the diary of Brother Ambrosius, on the 15th day of October, 1681, he was hanged by the neck until dead. On the day immediately following, he was buried in the unconsecrated ground beneath the gallows, close to the body of the girl he murdered. But the tale of the monk and the hangman's daughter did not end with their deaths. According to an old manuscript discovered years later in the monastery, uh, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. This story has the strangest ending. I will be back with it shortly.
0: If I could leave one thing with you when well, I'd leave this earth behind, I'd like to leave
10: the bright blue sky as my gift to all mankind. If I could choose just one small thing to the children I
5: pollution is a man-made product that grew up in a machine age, the result of a means to an end. But the end must change if we're to continue breathing. We can clean up the air, perhaps even in your time, but we need your help. Won't you? Join with your lung association in the fight against air pollution. It's a matter of life and breath.
8: The manuscript discovered in an old forgotten crypt related how Ambrosius was buried next to Benedicta. And then it went on with these words. This Benedicta, though called the hangman's daughter, was, as is now known through declarations of the youth Rocius, the illegitimate child of the Saltmaster by the hangman's wife. Pray for the hangman and all his family. Pray for the soul of Brother Ambrosius, who might have been a faithful servant of the Lord. Pray for them. Pray for them. Our cast included Christopher Tabori, Arnold Moss, E.V. Juster, and Russell Horton. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. Radio Mystery Theater was sponsored in part by True Value Hardware Stores. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time... Pleasant
2: dreams.
4: Truth is
5: stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not.
6: A girl in the Yuruk tribe in Turkey can become engaged only once in her lifetime. This rule holds even if her fiancé dies before the wedding. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the statue that was executed for murder. In the 5th century B.C., a statue erected to Theogenes of Tassos, Greece for winning 1,300 Olympic awards was flogged nightly by a jealous rival. One night while the jealous man was beating the statue, it toppled over and crushed him to death. Because the statue had killed a man, the act had to be punished. Therefore, the marble figure was tried for murder, convicted, and sentenced to be thrown into the sea, thus executing it for murder. Believe it or not. <laughs>
1: CBS Radio Mystery Theater with The Monk and The Hangman's Daughter. And that brings us to the end of our show for this week, dear listeners, and our housekeeping. Thank you for listening. First, I would like to point out that we now have a forum for our dear listeners to submit suggestions for stories to use on this program. All the details will be in our show notes and the link will be there as well. However, we would like to remind our listeners that this program currently only will air stories that are in the public domain. As always, all incidental music heard in this program is brought to us courtesy of TabletopAudio.com Tabletop Audio, music wherever you work, podcast, or play Dungeons & Dragons Finally, if you enjoyed this program or any of our other fine shows here on Radio for Humans, please consider signing up for a monthly donation on our Patreon once it goes live All of your support goes to keeping commercial-free radio programs as well as music on the air all day, every day for your listening pleasure This is yours cruelly, Adam Hebert, hoping to see you again next week for another exploration into the weird and the macabre. Until then, unpleasant dreams. Dread Time Stories Back from the Grave is a production of Adam Hebert for Radio for Humans and Approved Podcasting Platforms. Neither the producer nor Radio for Humans claim anything as their own intellectual property that they themselves have not created.